with God's call. And the whole back end of the book of Acts is really about Paul and Paul hearing God's call and believing that God is who he said he was. So, as I've said, for 64 weeks now, and not consistently, we've taken some breaks, we have plowed through every verse and every word of this book. And it is an incredible book. It's a book that's more than just a story of the history of church. It's a, it's a call on our life as Christ followers. It's who you and I together are supposed to be. If we follow Jesus, this book becomes, <clears throat> it becomes everything to us. And we've seen some of the most life-changing stories and encounters through its pages, and we are, we are coming to a close as, as we're seeing God's call on Paul's life and how it's going to kind of come to a um, kind of an open-ended stop. It's a kind of weird end of the book where it just sort of happens, and we're almost there. We have been through 26 chapters, um, and we are pulling into the final two. And the final two are really powerful because God's call on Paul's life <clears throat> is not coming without price and not coming without sacrifice. Now, I'm going to give you quite a bit of backstory <clears throat> because I know that it's been about six weeks since we've been in the book. I know that a lot of you are here for the first time. I won't do this every week um, because it just takes way too long. Um, <clears throat> but I want you to understand where we are because what's going to happen today, you really have to understand what's happened the past two years. And so I'm going to back up two years and I'm going to give you a little bit of background to get you to the point where we are today. Now, you may remember, a lot of you that have been here for a while may remember all this, and that's really great, and I really hope that you do, because this story is, is this story in the book of Acts is that just changes lives. And, um, but if you're not, I'm going to give you a quick little history, and hopefully you can kind of hang on to it. Paul has finished all the missionary journeys. He's been on three of them. He's been all over the known world, traveling thousands, traveled thousands of thousands of miles, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and he has returned to Jerusalem against the wishes of a lot of his friends and partners, saying, look, it's not good hostility waits for you there, anger waits for you there. But Paul returns to Jerusalem anyway because he believes that God is calling him to go. And he does. He shows up amongst rumors of hatred and anger about Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And there was just a growing hatred for this movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was beginning to take foot. And so when he, when he shows up, there is an angry group of people that want him dead. And they accuse him of some things that he didn't do, and they seize him, and they begin to just tear him limb from limb. And the Romans that are occupying the land at the time uh, kind of step in because any kind of riot or any kind of upheaval, they've got to squash and they step in and they, they rescue Paul from his hands of these angry Jewish leaders and, and Jewish people who want him dead because Paul has now given his life to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believe he's defiled the temple and they believe that he has sold himself out and all these kind of things. And the Romans step in and they save Paul, led by a Roman commander, a guy by the name of Lysias. And they take him into the army barracks and they're trying to figure out why everybody hates this guy so much. And so the way the Romans do it is they basically tie him to a table and they're going to beat him. They're going to beat the truth out of him. And they tie Paul to this table and they begin to almost flog him. And Paul says, hey, wait a minute. Just before you beat me, i got to remind you of something, or maybe you don't know. Is it legal for you to beat a Roman citizen? Because Paul was a Roman citizen. His father was from Tarsus. He was, uh, he was born Roman. And Romans had certain rights that the people they conquered didn't have. And, and the centurion guard that was doing the flogging or about to beat him stopped and said, it's kind of a big deal because we aren't allowed to uh, punish any Roman that hasn't been tried, much less torture them. And so he goes and gets Lysias, and he says, this guy's a Roman citizen. And Lysias says, is that true? And he says, yes. And they have this sort of debate. And then Paul says, can you really do this? And Lysias says, no. And so Lysias gets the Sanhedrin together, which is the big Jewish ruling council. And he says, why are you so angry at this guy? Right? 
So they ask Paul to come to his defense again, and Paul opens his mouth, and in one sentence, the high priest has him punched right in the face. I mean, punched out. So Paul, who's now frustrated, kind of gets the Sadducees and the Pharisees that make up this Jewish ruling council, gets them in a big argument over the resurrection because the Pharisees believe there's one, the Sadducees don't. Paul says, I'm not on trial here because I did anything wrong. I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They get in a huge fight, and the the text tells us they almost pulled Paul's arms and legs off, literally ripped him limb from limb. So Lysias steps in, seizes Paul, arrests him, and throws him back in the barracks, and the whole city is kind of in this uproar. Paul's laying in bed that night, and it says that Jesus himself shows up and he stands near Paul and he says, listen, Paul, don't be afraid. Take courage because as you testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to talk about me in Rome. Now, that's really important because that becomes the call for the rest of the book, that Jesus shows up and tells Paul that he is now going to testify in Rome, some 2,000 miles away in front of Caesar. Well, we learn that there's a murder plot. The Jews won't give up. They're going to kill Paul. And so Paul learns from his nephew that they're going to try and kill him by coming up with this idea. They're going to ask Lysias to send him back to the Sanhedrin. And when he does, they're going to ambush him and kill all the Roman soldiers and kill Paul. Well, this nephew learns that, tells Paul, tells Lysias. And so they decide to sneak Paul out of town in the middle of the night. And they assemble 470 Roman soldiers, 200 spearmen, 200 infantry, 70 on horseback in the middle of the night which is like two-thirds of the Roman army that's in Jerusalem at the time. In the middle of the night, they ride out of Jerusalem 60 miles towards Caesarea with a letter from Lysias to Governor Felix. And Governor Felix was the Roman that was in charge of the area. And this letter basically said, hey, this is Paul. He's a Roman citizen. I uncovered a murder plot. He did nothing wrong. He's your problem now. And so they send him to Felix, and Felix gets Paul. And Felix says, all right, we're going to put you on trial. He says, you're going to wait here five days in jail. I'm going to invite all the Jewish leaders to come down, and they're going to basically try your case. The Jewish leaders came down with a high-priced attorney named Tortellus, and they brought him in, and they accused him of three things, and all three things were punishable by death. So they were all death accusations. Paul stands up on trial. It's his turn to defend himself, and he basically says, hey, look, the first two are lies. The second one, though, or the third one, though, is true. I do, and I am a part of the way. I do follow Jesus, and I am part of the way, this Christian sect that you talk about. And if I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then fine, kill me. But I don't believe that's really what I'm on trial for, um, because what you're accusing me of doesn't line up. So they put him on trial. Felix can't really find anything wrong. It's punishable by death, but he's in a real pickle, because if he releases Paul, the Jewish people are going to revolt. And he is responsible for keeping order in the land. And the Jewish leaders are going to freak out and revolt. But he also knows that if he finds Paul guilty and has him killed, and Caesar finds out, the emperor finds out that he had a Roman citizen killed that wasn't even really guilty, then he was punishable actually by the very same sentence. So Felix has got this thing. Either I appease the Romans or I appease Caesar, but I'm stuck. And the kind of guy that Felix was, what he, he just does nothing. So for five days, he kind of dibble-dabbles around. He brings his wife in, actually, and Paul shares the gospel with him and her. It's really cool. And then he just says, I don't know what to do. So he leaves Paul in jail for, for two more years. For two years, Paul sits in jail, not convicted, not tried, not guilty, none of those things, just sort of waiting, right? God has told me that I'm going to Rome. Now I'm in jail under Governor Felix, and I'm just waiting for two years. Well, we find out that Governor Felix gets a letter that says he's under investigation. He's got to go back to Rome because Caesar's not real happy with how he's handled things. And so they ship in this other guy, a guy by the name of Porcius Festus. Festus comes in, he takes over for Felix, and Felix goes and stands his own trial. And Festus is a much better guy. He's not really a criminal, but he still inherits this time bomb of Paul, right? Paul's got a 
bunch of issues, and now Festus has inherited them all. So he goes straight to Jerusalem to try and figure out what's going on, and he meets with the Sanhedrin, and he says, why do I still have this guy, Paul, here? And they said, listen, here's what we want you to do. Just bring him back up here to us. We'll take care of it. And they have a plot that if they bring him to uh, Jerusalem, the 60 miles from Caesarea, they're going to kill him again. Well, Festus is no dummy, and so he kind of figures that's what's going to happen. So he invites them actually to come all the way back down, 60 miles, and try Paul again, this time in front of him. So the same thing happens. Paul goes down, stands trial before uh, Festus this time. They find nothing wrong with him. Again, Festus has caught another pickle. He's got the same situation that Felix has, which is if I release him, the Jews are going to freak out. If I don't, then I put him to death, then I'm going to die because I can't put a Roman citizen to death, right? And so he has this little political strategy where he says, maybe I can get Paul to let me know or say it's okay and, and decide to go to Jerusalem on his own to stand uh, under his own, their jurisdiction. So he says, hey, Paul, listen, this would really help me out a lot and help all of us out, but will you go to Jerusalem and stand trial under the jurisdiction of your people, the Jewish people? And Paul says, absolutely not, because I know what they're going to do. They're essentially going to kill me. So here's what I want to do. I want to stand trial before Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Now, that's kind of a big deal because in the first century, in those times, if you were Italian, meaning if you were from the area in Italy or from Rome, you had certain rights. If you were facing the death penalty or long-term imprisonment, you had the right to appeal your case to possibly be be heard before Caesar. But if you were a Roman living outside of Italy or outside of Rome, you had that same right only if there was no precedent in the case that you had going on. And there was no precedent for what was happening with Paul. I mean, this was a crazy scenario. And so Festus says, okay. I can't find anything wrong, but I also can't release you. You've appealed to Caesar, and so to Caesar you will go. The last little leg of the story, we find out that King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, who he loved, not like you should love a sister, but how you shouldn't love a sister, come to town, right? And they are interested because Agrippa II, who is sort of the king who is over the governor of Festus and all the bigger area, he's part of a really important family, right? Uh, he's a part of a, of a really important family, a family of the Herods, essentially. And so we learn of Agrippa I back in Acts chapter 12, but the great-grandfather of Agrippa I was Herod the Great, who was alive when Jesus was born. And they're a very powerful family and had lots and lots of power. But what's important to remember about them is that they served the Roman Empire, but they were Jewish. And so they often had their hands and lives in both sides of this thing. And so Agrippa II was very aware of what was going on with Paul. He being Jewish and over the whole area, he knew the whole story and he was really interested. So he comes to town to pay his respects with his sister, Bernice, and they say, tell us what's going on. And Festus needs help because he is stuck, right? And so he says, listen, I've got Paul and this is the story. And Agrippa says, let us, let us hear about it. So they set up the next day to have this sort of another trial. Big deal, though. Agrippa comes in with robes and crowns and trumpets and pomp and all this sort of stuff. And all the important people from the land and the military leaders, they all show up in this giant room. And and they basically march Paul in, in front of the whole thing. And Festus says, here's the problem. Paul wants to go to Rome. I don't really know what to do with him. He's appealed to Caesar. And I don't know what to write Caesar because I found nothing wrong with what he's done. But at the same time, I can't release him because he is appealed. So they stand Paul up in front of everybody, and they say, what's the deal? And so instead of Paul giving his defense that he's now given multiple times, Paul shares his story. 
And he retells the story of his conversion back from Acts 9, where he talks about how Jesus interrupted his life on the road to Damascus while he was pursuing to persecute Christians and sort of all these things. And he lays his story out there, and he basically says, Jesus interrupted my world, and he has put my, path, my life on a path to follow him and to share the gospel with Jews and Gentiles alike. And Festus freaks out, and he calls him a liar, and he screams and calls him crazy. And then Paul says, hey, listen, Festus, relax, because Agrippa knows this stuff. And he looks at Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets of God? Because he knew that Agrippa was Jewish. And he says, before Agrippa gets a chance to answer, he says, I know that you do. And he essentially put Agrippa in this real pickle saying, do you believe in the prophets of God as a Jewish man or do you side with Rome and with the people that are accusing me? And it really put him in a, in a really awkward place. And the room would have probably been like a big gasp. And he says, do you believe in the prophets? And he says, I, actually, I know you do. And then Agrippa says this. He says, hey, are you trying to convert me in such a short time? Like, you think that you can make me a Christian in these few moments? And then Paul has that all-important response where he says, hey, listen, short time or long, I pray that you and everybody in this room would know the God that has changed my life. And that really is Paul's whole motive. That no matter what he's doing, standing trial, wherever he is, like that the gospel would so permeate his life that they would encounter him. And he says, I want you to know the God, right? I want you to know the God that has done this to me, and I want you to be like me except for these chains. In other words, I don't want you to be in jail. Well, Festus and Bernice and Agrippa, they get up and they leave the room and they look at each other and they're like, he's done nothing wrong. And Agrippa says, we could release him if he hasn't already appealed to Caesar. So we're going to send him to Caesar. It's been two and a half years since Jesus stood next to Paul in those Roman army barracks and said, Take courage, don't be afraid. You must testify about me in Rome as you've done in Jerusalem. Now that's a lot of words and a lot of backstory, but I really want our church to be in love with God's word. I want us to understand its context and to see its movements because what we're going to see today is going to be influenced by the past two and a half years. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts 27 because the story is going to continue. And as you can imagine, it doesn't actually get easier, right? It can't get easier. It just happens to get more complicated for Paul. So we're going to follow that uh, backstory up with Paul is now going to start making that journey towards Rome, and it's not going to go well. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. And I'll try and be quick. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that your word is timeless, that it is perfect, that it is true, and that it is real. And that God, it speaks directly to our hearts and lives, no matter where we are, at every moment. God, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take that lightly. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, that God, even through all that sort of historical backstory, God, you would be teaching and equipping our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Just however you need to say that, whatever you need to say, just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This is not just about you. Pray that God would move in someone else. Pray that God would move in your spouse, in your friend, in that person that you don't know. Just pray for someone around you. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We ask that you would take this 
text and you would just turn over our hearts. You would instruct us and teach us and move in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a lot of this movement through the book of Acts sort of plays itself out less like super preaching and more like Bible study, right? And so that's kind of what today shapes out a little bit as. It's, it's a lot of kind of catching up and understanding because these historical movements are really, really important. I want you to grasp them. I want you to know them. I want you next time you jump in the book of Acts to go, oh, man, I remember that. I, I remember that context. I understand that story. Well, they've decided to send Paul to Rome. And so Paul's going to begin the 2,000-mile journey or 16, 17, 1,800-mile journey, depending on which way you go by boat, um, all the way to Rome where he has been told by Jesus himself that he was going to stand trial before Caesar. So let's look at verse 27. We're going to go all the way down through 26 uh, this morning and look at that whole front end of this travel. So it says this, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship for a dramatium about to set sail for the ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed in Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go see his friends so they may provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of, Cis, of Cis, uh, Cilicia excuse me, and Pamphylia. We landed in Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving in Sindias, where the wind did not allow us to hold our course. We sailed the Lee of Crete opposite of Salome and moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. And Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When the gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. And so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. And before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. And the ship was caught by the storm and could no longer head into the wind. So we gave, so we gave way and it, was dri- and it was driven along. And we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda. And we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed the ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground in the sandbars of Cerritus, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day we began to throw over the cargo. On the third day, we threw over the ship's tackle overboard uh, with their own hands. When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. And after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves and this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God whose I am and who I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith that God, that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. A lot of text. The quick story is this. 
They decide to let Paul go. He's going to head to Rome, right? They don't know what else to do with him. Festus is there. Agrippa's kind of given his permission. So they put him on a boat with a bunch of other prisoners that are headed to Rome, most likely to all stand trial before Caesar. And they give them to this guy named Julius, who's sort of in charge of all the prisoners. Now, Paul has somehow found favor with Julius. And Julius basically grants Paul a lot of nice things. In fact, we know that Luke, who wrote Acts, because he now uses the language we again, three times Luke in this book picks up and begins to travel with Paul. Well, he starts using the language we again, so Luke's back on the journey. And this other guy by the name of Aristarchus, who we know joined Paul back in Corinth on the third missionary journey and traveled with him for two and a half years all the way to Jerusalem and had been with him ever since. So maybe four and a half or five years Aristarchus has been with Paul. They're on the boat with him. Now, this isn't a small boat. We're going to find out later. There's about 276 people on board. It's not like a little Hefner sailboat. It's like a real boat with boat things. And they had a lot of people on board, right? I'm not a sailor, as you can tell. Um, a lot of people on board. And, and so this, this boat is going to make, kind of make its way up the coast. And as it does, Julius grants Paul a lot of favor. They stop inside and he lets him get out and get food and water and stuff from his friends. They take care of his needs. They board the boat again and they kind of make their way up the kind of coast there, going from place to place. Because in those days, you didn't just cut across the sea and sail. You sailed usually within sight of land, so that in case something went wrong, you could make land, plus you played the winds and the islands. And, and what you see here, and, and what a lot of scholars will tell you, is the most kind of uh, perfectly kept record of sort of maritime um, sailing in the whole kind of whole of ancient literature. And it's, it's kind of dotted with a whole bunch of really important things about cities and where winds blow. But for our purpose, the idea is that they just sort of hopped up the uh, coast there and they switched to a bigger boat and they made sail kind of around these islands protecting them from the wind and then they ran into some really strong headwinds that pushed them off course right all the way to this other island called Crete when they get there they had lost a ton of time and sailing was really important done by time because the sailing season was from May to about late September October, things got incredibly dicey, and they tell you in November, sailing in the Adriatic Sea, especially in ancient times, is basically suicidal in those times. So you sailed from May to September. Well, they had lost a lot of time, and Paul tells us that what had happened was the fast had already taken place, which was a really important Jewish kind of celebration that happened at the end of September, beginning of October. That had already happened, so we're seeing them well into October, and they're running into crazy storms. Right, And they get around the coast, and they come to this place where they think they can harbor, and Paul says, this is going to end in disaster. We're all going to basically come up across terrible things, and we're going to lose all our cargo. We need to park the boat. Right, And the owner of the boat, and Julius, and the pilot, who I guess is the captain, says, no, we're not going to park here because it's not a good place to winter. And when they talk about winter, they meant parking the boat for the entire winter season until May. Right, So they were going to wait from November or October until May, and they needed a safe place to park the boat. And so they said, we can't park the boat there. We're going to try to sail to Phoenix, which is about 50 miles away on the same island. Paul says, probably not a good idea, but you guys are in charge. And so they sail, and sure enough, this northeaster, this giant hurricane force wind, comes off the island and begins to batter the boat and pushes it way off course. And they're stuck. There's really nothing they can do. There's no motors. These are sails. And so they try a series of things by throwing the sea anchor, which really just means they tied all the boat's gear, threw it overboard, and tried to drag the boat along. When that didn't really work, they took the, the cargo out, which is the whole reason they're traveling, right? Not just the prisoners. This was a, a public boat, and they were taking all kinds of things, probably food and stuff and things to trade, and they just started tossing it over. 
Well, the waves get worse, and they take such a hammering one night that they try and get the lifeboat up because they would drag a lifeboat behind them, and they hoist it on. They take the ropes from the lifeboat, and they literally go underneath the boat. Some guy, whoever that guy is, has to jump over and swim underneath the boat, and they try and use these ropes to hold the planks in place. That's how basically the ship was breaking apart. They wake up the next day, and they're like, we can't do this. So they throw the tackle overboard, which is all the things that you would need to actually sail. So they throw rudders and stuff and things, and they just toss them all over, basically having lost hope. They didn't think they were going to be saved, right? Verse 23, 21 says, After the men had gone a long time without food. So now they have no food. They literally are being hammered by these waves. The boat is falling apart, and they have resolved themselves that they're going to die. After they've gone a long time without food, Paul stands up in front of all 276 people, which we'll see next week. He stands up in front of all of them, and he says, Listen. You should have listened to me, right? I mean, this is the perfect I told you so moment. He goes, you should have listened to me. I told you this was going to happen. But let me tell you something. Something amazing has happened. Basically, last night, while I was laying there, and we are falling to pieces in this boat, an angel of the Lord, the God who I serve and whom I belong, came to me and told me to be courageous because I must stand trial before Caesar. And he told me that all of you aren't going to die, but the boat's going to break apart, right? He said, so listen, people, take courage, right? Because my God is faithful. And I believe, I believe that he's God that keeps his promises. It's essentially what Paul says. And he says, but this boat is going to break apart. And that's kind of how the storm ends. Everyone hears that God is going to save their lives, but the boat's going to fall to pieces. And it's a really interesting story because if you think about what's happened to Paul, I mean, just think about it for just a moment for the past two and a half years. Paul shows up in Jerusalem where he's greeted with angry mob and rumors and they nearly kill him. He's seized by the Romans where he's arrested, where he's nearly beaten again. He's given back to the Sanhedrin where his limbs are nearly torn apart. He's arrested again. Jesus stands in his barracks that night while Paul is going, man, my life seems to be falling apart on some level, right? And Jesus says, listen, take courage. You're going to go to Rome. So Paul gets a little burst of energy there, finds out that they're trying to kill him. Under the cover of darkness, he's escorted out of town by 470 Roman soldiers. He shows up, stands trial where he's found innocent and then kept in jail for two more years. Where a new guy comes, still in jail, still doesn't know what to do. The king comes, still in jail, still doesn't know what to do. Two governors, a king, three trials later, and he's put on a boat where it goes a month out of what should have happened to find themselves on the back end of an island, battered by the waves, all about to die, ships falling apart. Angel Lord shows up again and says, hey, look, it's not over, but you are going to get crashed. I mean, that has been Paul's two and a half years. Now, I, don't, I mean, we don't see this from Paul, but I can guarantee you what I would be saying is, God, what in the world is happening? Like, why would you tell me this is what we're doing and then keep throwing all of these things, these hardships, these circumstances in my life? Like, why is it happening? When you call me, you are supposed to bless the way. Because most of us on that path would have seen, hey, man, God is shutting all these doors, right? But we never see Paul in any of these moments come to that place where he says, God, what are you doing? He just seems to believe in God's faithfulness, to believe that God is who he said he was, that God is going to be a God that keeps his promises. Even if that means two years in prison, shipwrecks, all those kind of things, like I believe that God is who he said he is. And I find it really remarkable because my faith is so shaky, man. The wind blows one way and I'm like, God, where are you? Things happen and I go, how come you're not here? And and yet we see these things unfolding in the life of Paul who has been so faithful to God's call, right? And following Jesus is 
is not easy. But there's a couple of things in this text, and I'm going to do them really quickly, that I want, you to, I want to point out to you um, that, that really stood out to me. And they're not really super connected, but they're, they're really important. And the first we see is in, in verse 2. And it really demonstrates to me the beauty of biblical partnership. And I use the word partnership really intentionally because it's a word that Paul himself uses all the time. In fact, the New Testament uses it a lot. It's a Greek word, the word koinonia. And the word koinonia means sharing life together or being in joint participation with. Now, if there's any word, um, we kind of translate that really quickly in our kind of Western church culture is the word fellowship, right? And if there's any word that's been battered more by the church and fellowship, I'm not sure what it is, but we have reduced koinonia or fellowship in the church to donuts before, you know, we gather. Maybe we name a fellowship hall in our church because that's what we do lunch in. But fellowship is really like, hey, we're having a fellowship. We're all going to get together and share a snack or whatever. And that's really what we have reduced koinonia to. But koinonia in the Bible is, is shared deep relational partnership where our lives are intertwined that we are in joint participation with. And the New Testament is full of this. And you really get that sense in verse 2 because in almost a throwaway sentence, Paul boards this boat, right, from a a dramatium headed all the way to Rome, 2,000 miles. Who knows if he's coming back? And we get this sort of throwaway verse where Luke says, we were with him, me and this guy named Aristarchus. We were going with Paul in the boat. What would cause Luke or this Macedonian named Aristarchus who had spent five years with Paul to board this boat, facing seas that they know were coming, traveling all the way to Rome with Paul. It was a question that really stirred my heart because most of us in our lives long for deep, real biblical fellowship, partnership. We long for it. We want that so desperately. And we look around and we say, God, I want to be a part of a church where I belong. God, I want to be a part of a church where people know me, where I know them. I want to be a part of a church where I am connected with, where I have koinonia, where I have fellowship, where I have partnership. That's what I want. And so we look at our lives and we ask this question, who is that for me? Right? Who is that person that invests in me, that partners with me, that shares with me, that, that knows my deepest fears, that cries my deepest tears? Right? Who is that person that, that will board that ship to Rome for me? We come to churches, and if people don't say hi to us enough, we say they're not friendly and we leave. Right? Because I think the question's really broken. The question that we ask is, who does that for me? And the question we should be asking is, God, who am I that for? Like, who am I that person for? Because that takes vulnerability and it takes authenticity. It takes honesty to be able to walk into someone's life and say, I want to know you so intimately that I will cry your deepest gut-wrenching tears, that I will pray your deepest prayers, and that I will board that boat to Rome wherever it's going, regardless of the outcome. Like, I am with you and for you. And most of us long for it, right? But we want it to fall in our lap. And so I just started thinking about these relationships that... Paul had had with some of the people he traveled with, Aristarchus or Timothy or, or Luke, and these, these partnerships. They're not friendships, man. They are partnerships. They go beyond friendship. Friendship in our culture carries a connotation of like cordial, good time. We do things together. It's all fun. But friendships fall apart. Partnerships are just, they're made and they're forged. Like I want to be a part of a community where I'm in partnership with people. It doesn't mean we're in partnership with everyone, but it means that we have deep, meaningful relationships where I'm known and where I know people. Because there's a beauty in biblical partnership. I mean, there is a beauty 
in having someone in your life or being that for someone that will say, so you're under arrest and going to Rome? Like, where's the boat? Because here's the thing, it's a public boat, right? Who knows how they decided to go? Maybe Julius granted them the effort, or maybe they just bought a ticket and said, hey, as long as you're sailing, we'll just kind of come along. Because they wanted to be there with Paul. Paul had been in jail for two years. You know how easy it is for us to walk out of someone's life after two years of just kind of going, man, it's hard to see him. I mean, heck, I got people that live four blocks from me, and I can't see them for four months because life is what it is, right? There's a beauty in this biblical partnership that we see that, that, that I want our church to be made up of. Networks, webs, connections, deep, real relationships that matter. And it doesn't mean every one of our relationships is going to be that way, but having a core people that just say, look, I am for you and you are for me, and we will do whatever it takes to hold each other up in Christ. Like, I long for that, right? I think a lot of us do. The other thing I want you to see that's not connected to that at all um, is, is really powerful to me because it's, it's this picture of how we are called as followers of Christ to be consistently courageous. And I don't use the word courageous like, be brave, be bold, no matter what comes your way. I mean, I'm really talking about the sort of thing that happens in Paul's life, right? Paul is nearly killed a couple of times. He's laying in the army barracks at night, and Jesus shows up right in the middle of his life, and he says, hey, listen, Paul, don't be afraid. Take courage because you're going to testify about me in Rome. In other words, saying, hey, look, this isn't over. But it's actually, it's not going to get easier. And then the same thing happens. Two years later, he's on a boat that's being torn apart in the middle of the Adriatic Sea. Everybody thinks they're going to die. Planks are falling apart. Ropes are being, trying to hold together. They've thrown over all the food, all the cargo, all the ship's tackle. Like essentially, they just said, our boat is sinking, and now we have just reduced ourselves to buying into that. And God sends his presence, and the angel of the Lord stand next to Paul, presence again, and says, take courage. Don't be afraid. You've got to stand trial before Caesar. In both instances, God shows up in Paul's life in the moments of deepest, sort of darkest night, right? In the middle of despair, in the middle of fear, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of unknown, and God shows up and says, listen, take courage, because essentially I am God. Like, I am in control. And he doesn't tell Paul it's going to get easier. He doesn't say, hey, listen, take courage because here's what's going to happen. It's all going to get easier from here. I'm taking the problems away. They're not going to kill you. You're not going to be drowned. You're not going to do any of those things. It's going to be great. So just relax. He doesn't do any of that. He looks at Paul and he says, take courage. Things are most likely going to get worse, right? You're going to testify about Rome, but the Lord knew that that was going to be a long way. He says, you're going to save your life, but you're going to end up on shipwrecked in Malta People are going to get bit by snakes, as we'll see. This is not an easy road. We want God to step in and solve our problems. We want God to come in and give us relief. We want to cry out to God and have him take every nail, every pain, every struggle, every hurt away so that our lives make happy little corners where we can live and justify our Christian existence. But God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes God's call like on Paul's life, leads us directly into prison, directly into the sea, directly into storms. And the Holy Spirit literally tells Paul to take courage, not because there's light at the end of the tunnel, because in the middle of the storm, God is reminding Paul that he is still in control, that he is still God. When he says take courage, what he's saying is believe that I am who I say I am. 
And that really resonates with my heart because I am one that cries out to God for relief. God, free me. Release me. Right? We serve a God that sometimes leads us right into the storm to see his glory. Right into the storm to see that he is God and that he is at work and that he is moving and that his glory shines just as bright in those moments as it does when we reach the other side. And this morning, what I want you to understand is that Paul's journey, right? Man, it was a journey of, it was a a journey that was wrought with all kinds of hardships that were anchored in the promises of God. He didn't have to live it alone. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. He lived it in community with people that cared for him, partnership, loved him. But in the moments of deep and darkest nights, in the moments where there were night upon night without seeing the sun or without seeing the moon and day upon day without seeing the sun and you're throwing everything overboard, God shows up and says, listen, be be courageous because I am still God. I think there's a lot of us sitting here today that just need to hear God speak to our hearts and say, God, I am still God. Like even in what's going on, even in your uncertainty, even in your broken relationships, even in your fear, even in your struggle, I am still God. In the middle of this storm, right, I'm still God. And most of us want to put our hope in the fact that the boat won't break apart instead of putting our hope in the fact that we have a God who is in control and over all the winds and the storms. We do everything we can to lace the boat together instead of believing that the God who created all is still in control. I need to be at a place where I say, God, I, I believe you control the wind and the waves, and I believe you are in them and work in them. And I believe that you are not done. Everything is redeemable and movable. And God's plan is always at work. This truth is really evidenced for us in this table. I mean, the truth is, is that communion is this, it is this picture of God's perfect working in providence, that he loved creation so much. That he loved creation so much that he sent his son Jesus to walk this earth, to model this perfect sinless life, to redeem sin and brokenness, to die in our place, to be the resurrection and the life. That if we believe in him, we are not bound by sin and death. We have victory over life. In the middle of this turbulent, wind kind of thrown, wave breaking over our boat's world, we have a God that has already given us the perfect and ultimate promise and victory that if we trust in Jesus Christ, not only do we have eternal life when we die, but that eternal life begins right now. True, abundant, real life. That is what Paul anchored his hope to. It's what he stood up in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of all these trials, and proclaimed is that, listen, if I'm on trial for believing in that, then I am guilty and kill me. Because all of my hope is wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is alive. And it's what anchored him, right, in those moments of despair, laying in the army barracks, in the back of that boat, the cover of darkness, falling apart. I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And this is how he ends that. He looks at, he looks at these guys and he basically says, right, so keep your courage, men. I have faith in God that it will happen as he has told me, meaning that God keeps his promises. No matter what happens, I believe that God is who he says he is. And I found myself last night, as I was kind of getting finally ready for this morning, to just praying that in my heart, God, I believe that you are who you say you are. Anchor my heart to that truth. This table is that picture, that God is who he says he is. He's the redeemer, that through Jesus Christ, he has given us life, he has given us breath, 
He has given us reason to love and reason to live and reason to dance and reason to celebrate. He is Redeemer God. And Jesus gave this table as a gift for us as believers that we may celebrate this truth together. And it's not something we do lightly. It's not lightly. It's not something we do as a token effort as part of the church. It is the very celebration of the truth that God is who he says he is, that he is alive and that he is Redeemer. That night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that everyone would flee, the night that he scrubbed the filth off his disciples' feet, he gathered with them and he prayed and he gave thanks and he said, this bread is my body, and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. When we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This table is the ultimate picture of God's perfect faithfulness to the person of Jesus Christ, that our belief and trust in him is life-saving. It's redeeming. It's perfect. Here at Divine Community Church, we just take communion by means of intention, which is a really fancy way of saying when you come down front, you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup and you can eat it there. We don't have really fancy ways of doing it. As you feel called and ready, just come down front and we ask you to remain standing as we close our time in worship. I'm going to invite the band to come up and get ready to lead us in worship. I'll invite our servers to come forward uh, as we prepare to take this meal together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are um, redeeming God, that you are a God who is forever and always at work, that there is nothing that is beyond your movement and beyond your grace. There is nothing that is beyond your reach. And that God, even in the middle of life's chaos, the middle of life's storms, the middle of life's struggles, you are consistently at work and you call us to courage, not for courage's sake, but because you are who you say you are. And that, God, we need to believe and trust in those promises. So, Lord, as we celebrate this meal, this communion, this evidence of your perfect grace, God, may it be with an open and grateful heart, a heart that lays, confesses our sin out before you, and a heart that rejoices in your goodness. So, Lord, hear our cry, hear our worship as we celebrate all that you are. God, you are faithful. God, you call us to community and you call us to courageous living. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as you're ready. Take this meal together and then...